Now, this morning, I want to read to you from excerpts from two books. The first is by an author whom none of us has ever really seen tangibly, but all of us long to. The words are both comforting and convicting, full of grace and truth, and they outline for us what makes the Christian life believable to the skeptical, often cynical world around us. It's a unique translation. Listen to these words. So here's what I want you to do, God helping you. Take your everyday, ordinary life, your sleeping, eating, going to work, and walking around life, and place it before God as an offering. Embracing what God does for you is the best thing that you can do for Him. Don't become so well-adjusted to your culture that you fit into it without even thinking. Instead, fix your attention on God. You'll be changed from the inside out. Readily recognize what He wants from you and quickly respond to it, unlike the culture around you always dragging you down to its level of immaturity. God brings the best out of you, develops well-formed maturity in you. Love. From the center of who you are, don't fake it. Run for dear life from evil. Hold on for dear life to good. Be good friends who love deeply, practicing playing second fiddle. Don't burn out. Keep yourself fueled in a flame. Be alert, servants of the master, cheerfully expectant. Don't quit in hard times. Pray all the harder. Help needy Christians be inventive in hospitality. Bless your enemies, no cursing under your breath. Laugh with your happy friends when they're happy. Share tears when they're down. Get along with each other. Don't be stuck up. Make friends with nobodies. Don't be the great somebody. Don't hit back. Discover beauty in everyone. If you've got it in you, get along with everybody. Don't insist on getting even. That's not for you to do. I'll do the judging, says God. I'll take care of it. Our scriptures tell us that if you see your enemy hungry, go buy that person lunch. Or if he's thirsty, get him a drink. Your generosity will surprise him with goodness. Don't let evil get the best of you. Get the best of evil by doing good. That's Romans 12, chapter that we're in right now, verses 1 and 2, and then 9 to 13, uh, 9 to 21 in the message. The second book I want to uh, kind of quote from is a metaphorical illustration of the first that I just read from. The book is called The Giving Tree by Shel Silverstein. How many of you have seen this book, read it? Many have children, mostly women raise their hands. The front cover is kind of Dr. Seuss-ish. This design clearly portrays this as an endearing children's story. Yet you turn it over and you're met with something of a stark contrast. <laughs> On the back, full page, black and white photo of the author, a grizzly bear of a man with bald head and dark piercing eyes, flared nostrils, a full beard, and teeth bared, as if you were about to say something like what Clint Eastwood would say with a curled lip in one of his Dirty Harry movies, right? Go ahead, punk, read it. Make my day. <laughs> Ken Geyer, 
describes the gist of the story here with clarity. The story is only 624 words long with simple ink drawings by the author, and despite the gruff-looking photograph on the back cover, it couldn't be a more tender story. It begins this way. Once there was a tree, and she loved the little boy. The story is about a relationship over the course of the little boy's life, chronicling his childhood, adolescence, adulthood, middle age, and old age. In his youth, the little boy gathers the tree's leaves and makes them into crowns, pretending to be king of the forest. He playfully climbs her trunk, swings from her branches, eats her apples, sleeps in her shade. And the boy loved the tree, the author comments, and the tree was happy. As the boy grows into adolescence, he spends less and less time with the tree, preferring instead the company of a young woman. One day when the boy comes back needing money, the tree has no money to give, but she tells the boy to gather her apples so he can sell them and make the money that he needs. And then the boy stays away for a longer, longer time, which makes the tree sad. And one day the boy returns as an adult, and he wants to get married and raise a family, he tells the tree. But he needs a house to do that. So he asks the tree for a house. The tree tells the boy he could take her branches and use them to build a house. And when he leaves, the tree is bare. Later in his manhood, the boy returns again. He's older now and seems disappointed with his life. He asks the tree for a boat so he can carve one out and sail far away. The tree offers to let him cut down her trunk so, she can make, so he can make a boat and sail away and be happy. There is now nothing left to the tree but the stump. So when the boy is old and shriveled, he returns to the tree one last time. And the conversation goes like this. I'm sorry, boy, said the tree, but I have nothing left to give you. My apples are gone. My teeth are too weak for apples, says the boy. My branches are gone, says the tree. You can't swing on them. I'm too old to swing on the branches, said the boy. My trunk is gone, said the tree. You can't climb. I'm too tired to climb, said the boy. I'm sorry that I could not give you something, but I have nothing left. I'm just an old stump. And the boy tells the tree that he's tired. And all he needs is a quiet place to sit and rest. Elated that she still has something to give, however small a gift, she invites the boy to sit and rest. And the next page is a drawing of an old, tired man on the stump with these words, and the boy did. The next page is empty except for these words, and the tree was happy. And that's where the book ends. Creating a moment of rest, not just for the boy, but also for the reader. In that restful moment is time to reflect. Once there was a tree, and she loved a little boy. The happiness of the tree was in giving herself to the boy that she loved giving all of herself for all the boy's life, every minute of it. It's a poignant story about life, about relationships, about love, about growing up, and about growing old. Most of us have come to know Christ through people who have been giving trees. Is that right? You could name them right now. People who have selflessly and generously given of their lives for each other. 
Some may have been family members, others friends, maybe even a few of them complete strangers. As somebody observed, they gave branches to play in, shade to rest in, apples to be nourished by, wood to build with, stumps to sit on. And it made them happy. That was their beauty. Now, whatever else this may be, because some people think it's something completely different than what I just described to you, well, I just assume be naive and think that that's what it's really about. This is a poignant reminder of the way that Jesus lived his life. It is also a penetrating challenge to the church of the way that we're supposed to be living ours. Of all the giving trees in this life, none should give more freely, selflessly, or generously than those of us in the body of Christ. Is that right? For we are his hands and his feet, his branches, so to speak. And it is by our attitudes and actions that the rest of the world will come to believe that a life committed to following Jesus is worth pursuing and embracing. That's what we've been uncovering for the last few weeks in Romans chapter 12, verses 9 to 21, the character of authentic Christianity. And I'd like you to turn there in your Bibles because we're going to pick it up again today. Romans 12, verses 9 to 21. It begins with the personal authenticity of who we are as Christians. And it becomes intensely practical through our relational activities toward others, especially others in the faith in the first few verses there. And the last time we were together, we learned that this intensely relational aspect of Christian faith is characterized first by brotherly love. Look at verse 10. Be devoted to one another in brotherly love. Give preference to one another in honor. It's characterized by brotherly love and intense humility, mutual humility, giving honor to one another and preference to one another. Today, we're going to discover that not only is this practical Christian activity intensely relational, but it's also combustible, right? Authentic Christians are combustible. What do I mean by that? Look at verse 11. Not lagging behind in diligence, fervent in spirit, serving the Lord. Let me ask you a question. How much zeal for Christ do you have? How much do you have? As I look out at a lot of you boomers well into the second half of your life, this is what you're communicating to me. Come on, man, I'm tired. I'm emotionally drained and physically spent. I know. So I won't lie to you. Sometimes I feel just like that. A lot of times I feel just like that. But the question I wrestle with daily, and I'm really asking you right now, is how's your soul? How is your soul? One of the things which makes Christianity real to people far from God is a stoked-up fire for Christ. Amen? Uh, That was like a flicker. (laughs) Paul indicates here that when we are walking in vital union with Christ, when our soul is really spiritually healthy, we are three things here, fueled up to run, fired up to burn, and freed up to serve. 
Let's unpack those three things. First of all, a combustible Christian, an authentic combustible Christian, they're fueled up to run. Paul says, not lagging behind in diligence. Donald Gray Barnhouse nailed it when he said that spiritual laziness is the cause of spiritual defeat. The danger of slipping into spiritual deadness is a constant threat to us. It seeks to grab hold of every single believer on the planet. Our tireless enemy, the devil, would like nothing more than to have every Christ follower become stagnant in their spirit. Is that right? Why? Why do you suppose that is? Because there is nothing less palatable to God and to the world than a lukewarm Christian. Right? The Bible says, you're lukewarm, I'm going to spit you out of my mouth. That's what Jesus said to the church in Revelation at Laodicea. I'd rather you be hot or cold. Are you lukewarm? I'm going to spit you out of my mouth. How are your spiritual disciplines going anyway? I ask myself that too. If a person told you he was an ardent Red Sox fan, or now, it's a different season, right? Patriots. And yet he never watched the games. He didn't know who the players were, had no inclination about their status in the league, you wouldn't give him much credence as a fan, would you? How do you think people look at Christians who claim that they love God with all their heart, soul, mind, and strength, that Jesus is their Lord, that Jesus is their Savior, yet they never talk about him, they never read about him, they never speak about him, they never act like him, or they don't even get involved with him or his church? How do you think people view people like that? Not very believable. Friends, I'm going, to ask, I'm going to make a bold statement that I want you to chew on all this week, okay? I cannot love Christ with all my heart and honor him with half of it. I cannot love Christ with all my heart and honor him with half of it. Would you want that in your spouse? How diligent are we in pursuing deeper intimacy with God, greater community with those in the church, and life-changing influence among those that are on the outside, those out in the world. Combustible Christians, Paul says, are fueled up to run, not lagging behind in diligence. Then he says, fervent in spirit. Combustible Christians are fired up to burn. Fervent in spirit. How high would your temperature be on a spiritual thermometer if we took it right now? Maybe I should say it would probably be fairly high right now in this place. Let's take it, let's say, on Wednesday uh, when you get into work. Would you be running a fever? Paul says to be authentic is not to be idle and lazy, but to be on fire, fervent in spirit. That's what fervent signifies here. It means to boil. That's what the original word means in the language. The original language is a far cry from the idea of lukewarmness. Albert Barnes said, an idle man and a Christian are names which do not harmonize. 
Jim Elliott, the well-known missionary, martyred in Ecuador in 1956, once read Hebrews chapter 1, verse 7, which calls God's ministers a flaming fire. And this is what he wrote in his diary. He says, am I ignitable? God, deliver me from the dreadest bestest of other things. Saturate me with the oil of the Spirit that I may be a flame. Make me thy fuel, flame of God. What a journal entry. See, Jim Elliott knew that flames are often short-lived, but he considered himself as one who was consumed by zeal for God's house. Are we anything like that today? We who enter every day armed with an arsenal of tablets, Bluetooth-enabled smartphones, headsets, and personal digital assistance, while seemingly time-conscious, fail to understand the importance of time on a spiritual level. How precious and fleeting time is. Is that right? Benjamin Franklin put it this way, Dost thou love life? Then do not squander time, for that is the stuff that life is made of. In a meeting I was involved in some years ago, one of the older men shared this a moving statement that characterized his personal desire to serve Christ till his dying breath. He shared that he understood that there was not much left of his life, not much time, and he wanted to spend every single available minute doing only what would last for eternity. Only what is done for Christ will last, he used to say. Friends, that should be our prayer, the instant we wake up in the morning, every single day. Father, let me live today as if my eternity depended on it. Think how your day would go if you prayed that prayer before you got out of bed in the morning. Father, let me live today as if my eternity depended on it. Now, I pray to God that we all understand and adopt that truth. You and I don't have any idea how much time we have left, do we? Do you know when you're going to die? You know when God's going to take you home? Of course you don't. We don't have any, not one iota of an idea as to how much time we have left. And as I look at the events unfolding in this world today, that thought is becoming very, very real to me, and it ought to be to you. So then don't waste what precious little time there is, amen? We cannot waste it. How many marriages might change and many issues resolved if every single moment of that married life were lived as if it were crucial to eternity? We'd become less ingrown and more outwardly focused, wouldn't we? How many affairs would be avoided if we lived that way? How many angry words aimed at children or parents would be diffused and dissolved if before we spoke them, we thought, I'm living today like eternity depended on it. How much greater ministry might we accomplish if we only had the kingdom of God at the heart of our actions instead of the kingdom of me? The prayer of Moses is very instructive in Psalm 90, verse 12. It says, teach us to number our days that we might present to thee a heart of wisdom. Or in the Good News Bible, I like this, it's really to the point. Teach us how short our life is so that we might become wise. I once read an author who posed this question. He said, do your commitments match your convictions? 
I pose it this morning to all of us. Do your commitments match your convictions? Elaborating a little more, he writes this. He says, we all hold convictions about what matters most in our lives, about what we hold most dear. But when we take stock of our day-to-day actions, there is often this gap between what we value and how we spend our time, money, and energy. And I think that's what this stewardship thing that Al was talking about that starting tonight is supposed to deal with. It's how do you spend your time, your money, your energy, your passions according to what convictions you hold to be true about God, about your relationship to God? So regret prevention, I love that phrase, regret prevention means taking an honest look at what commitments are shaping our lives, doesn't it? And then this author categorizes some of the binding commitments of life that you and I drift into that keep us from living out our deepest values and convictions. There are, he says, dramatic commitments. Buying a house, for example. Buying a house that is an hour from where you work. We love the idea of the beautiful, spacious home, but don't consider the hidden cost of time that is stolen from the family or from serving Christ because of the extra time in the commute. And he says there are routine commitments, saying yes to a committee or a class or a new responsibility at work or even at church. Routine commitments may look mundane, he says, but don't underestimate their power. Any parent who has signed up a five-year-old for soccer knows the time-consuming potential of the routine commitment, right? There are cults that place fewer demands on a person's time (laughs) than soccer leagues do. It's easy for me to say I'm on the other side of it now. But then there are unspoken commitments, he says. These would include things like an obsession with golf or chat rooms or ambitions or or Netflix or whatever. Addictions are all forms of unspoken commitments that rob us dearly of our time. The author writes, one of the most surprising discoveries of recovering addicts is how much time their addiction consumed. Whether it involves sex, shopping, or substance abuse, addictions steal hours not only to be indulged in, but also to be fantasized over, funded, covered up, or regretted. Think of how much time goes into our addictions. They're not just habits that shame us. They're habits that rob us of our lives. Amen? And of course, the primary unspoken commitment of our li- in our lives is watching TV, video, or cruising Facebook. Someone has pointed out that maybe nowhere is the gap between conviction and commitments more pronounced than in family life. Parents will spend four hours or more watching TV or cruising the internet I heard something the other day on the radio. I could not believe it. A woman said that she used to spend 16 hours a day on her smartphone, cruising Facebook, the Internet, and and, and she homeschooled her kids. How does one do that? 
16 hours a day. So parents will do that, and then they'll spend an hour shopping and six minutes playing with their children. But they will claim to high heaven that family is the most important thing to them. The Apostle Paul warned Timothy of this tendency that we have to drift into these things that keep us from living out what is eternally important to us. In 2 Timothy 2, verse 4, he says, And as Christ's soldier, do not let yourself become tied up in the affairs of life, for then you cannot satisfy the one who has enlisted you into his army. Don't get tied up. Don't let yourself become entangled is what the word really means or caught in the web. And of course, Jesus made it all clear when he said that the name of the game is to love the Lord your God with all of your heart, all of your soul, all of your mind and strength, and then to love your neighbor as yourself. That's what matters most, the Bible says. God and people. You want to know what the four most common regrets people have when they get to the end of their life are? I would have loved more deeply. I would have laughed more often. I would have given more generously. I would have lived more boldly. Sounds like giving tree stuff to me. All of these, when brought under the lens of Scripture and the Lordship of Jesus, will make an impact for eternity on people. William James said this, the best use of your life is to spend it for something that outlasts it. Make sense? The fact is, the kingdom of God is the only thing that's going to outlast this life, amen? Everything else will eventually burn out. So what are you doing for the kingdom of God is the next question. It begs the question, what are we doing for the kingdom of God? Are we ignitable Christians? Are we combustible, authentic Christians? Do you want to be an intense flame for God? Not lagging behind in diligence, serving the Lord, fervent in spirit, serving the Lord. You need to be fueled up to run, fired up to burn, and combustible, authentic Christians are freed up to serve. Look at verse 11 again. Serving the Lord. He says, here's the hinge on which this entire passage swings, that phrase right there, serving the Lord. That's right. The one used, the word used here for serving in verse 11 refers to serving as a slave. If you're a Christian, you are a slave of Christ. Now think about that for a minute. If I'm a Christian, I am a slave of Christ. And the type of slave service described by this word was utterly, utterly despised in the Greek culture because it demanded, listen to this now, complete subjection of one's own will to that of another. The Greeks felt that it was, utter, it was utter contempt. They felt utter contempt for this position of service. It was repulsive to them. The life of this type of slave was one of compulsory labor and service. He was not free at all to serve himself. 
The Greeks of Paul's time felt that a man found his true worth only in the freedom to develop his full potential by raising his level of self-consciousness. Sounds like a lot of stuff that's being preached today. The same attitude permeates today's society and unfortunately is rampant in the church as well. Invite somebody to get involved in ministry and often the response comes back, I don't have time. And don't question me because my time is mine. I'm free to do with it as I please. Look, if that's your attitude, you're not free at all. You're a slave to yourself. Your kid's sports schedule, your job, your friends, your hobbies, your lusts, your addictions, whatever, but you are not free. In the familiar words of a famous folk singer, you're going to have to serve somebody. Yes, indeed. You're going to have to serve somebody. Well, it may be the devil or it may be the Lord, but you're going to have to serve somebody. Anybody know who they said that, who wrote that? Bob Dylan. You might be a rock and roll addict prancing on the stage. You might have drugs at your command, women in a cage. You may be a businessman or some high-degree thief. They may call you doctor or they may call you chief, but you're going to have to serve somebody. Somebody. Friends, you are a slave to something. Better to be a slave to Christ where his load is easy, his burden is light. And only in him will you find rest for your soul. For you and I, as Christ followers, being free means being set free from slavery to sin. That's what it means. Yet it also means that we're Christ's possessions, blood-bought and ransomed for his use. Amen? We are not our own. The Bible says we were bought with a price, the precious blood of Christ. We are saved to serve. Practical and authentic Christian activity is relational. It's combustible. Thirdly, Paul says that authentic Christian, Christians are unstoppable. Look at verses 12 and 13. Rejoicing in hope, persevering in tribulation, devoted to prayer, contributing to the needs of the saints, and practicing hospitality. See, we're excited by the prospects here. Look at what it says. Slave, slavery doesn't sound like anything to get excited about, does it? Not to people in our culture. Who wants to be a slave, really? Do you? But read the bold print of what that means in Romans chapter 6, verses 22 to 23. But now you have been set free from sin and are the slaves of God. Your gain is a life fully dedicated to him, and the result is eternal life. For sin pays its wage, death, but God's free gift is eternal life in union with Christ Jesus our Lord. Amen is right. That is something to get excited about, rejoicing in hope. Amen? There's great hope in that. And that's what enables true believers to endure under the pressures of this life, rejoicing in hope, persevering in tribulation. We can endure under pressure. There was a popular song a few years ago that encouraged hurting people to just hold on for one more day and things would get better. Remember that song? Wilson Phillips, 
The problem was that it never identified anything to hold on to. People don't need empty lines, empty lyrics to help them. They need to know that it might not get better for them here on the third rock from the sun, right? But if you have Jesus Christ in your life, you've got something sure to hold on to. The writer of Hebrews identified this hope as an anchor of the soul, an anchor of the soul, both sure and steadfast in Hebrews 6.19. No matter what circumstances are thrown at you as a believer, you can hold on to the fact that someday, someday it's going to be different. Someday it's going to be different. No more time demands, no more health problems, no more money problems, no more loneliness, no more fear of death, no more walking by faith. We'll walk by sight because we will see him face to face. That is what is in store for everyone who through faith have embraced a personal relationship with Jesus Christ who gave all of himself for us on the cross. Now, why would he do that if it wasn't worth it? You were worth it to him? Really? Yes, you were. He did it so we could rest from our weariness and our struggle against sin's guilt and condemnation, amen? And that's worth rejoicing about. And by, by living out this joy through serving each other, it brings hope and it helps us to patiently endure the storm. Here's something for you to ponder. Becoming a giving tree breaks the hold, the pain, and the discouragement of this life has on my soul. Let me say that again. Becoming a giving tree breaks the hold, the pain and discouragement of this life that it has on my soul. Ever notice that when we're not engaged in the practical activity of a Christian faith, when we're not doing what these verses in Romans 12 exhort us to do, that we tend to get lazy, and then we tend to get irritable, and then we lose our joy? On the other hand, when we are actively practicing these things, we are not only hopeful, but also in constant need of help because of the intense opposition the unbelieving world puts up against us. And then we find that we need to do what Charlie exhorted us to do this morning, to pray unceasingly. Hence, Paul's exhortation in verse 12, to be devoted to prayer, rejoicing in hope, persevering in tribulation, devoted to prayer. See, we are empowered by prayer. Every giving tree that I have ever been acquainted with derive their strength and resolve through prayer. Everyone, without exception. You know why? Because without prayer, we run out of gas. In his book, Prayer, Does It Make Any Difference? Philip Yancey writes these words. He says, contact with God doesn't just provide a moment of spiritual ecstasy. It equips me for the rest of my life. You see, contact with God it's not about us feeling spiritual ecstasy. It's, it's about equipping us for the rest of our lives. In short, prayer invites God, yes, he says, into my world and ushers me into God's world. Jesus himself, who spent many hours in solitary prayer, invariably returned to a busy world of weddings, dinners, and crowds of sick and needy people. 
See, he rejected Peter's suggestion to build a tent on the Mount of Transfiguration and returned instead to the valley, to the masses below, and was immediately struck by a demon-possessed boy. Following that pattern, we looked for ways to bring the two worlds together, heaven and earth, God's and mine, to let them become one, and prayer does that. God may keep constant pressure on us for the sole purpose of calling our attention to him for help moment by moment in prayer. You ever think about that? Think of it this way, and I've said this before. Prayer is spiritual breathing. If we don't do it, we die. Practical Christian activity, authentic Christianity is unstoppable. It rejoices, it endures in tribulation, it is empowered by prayer. All of this, however, cannot take place in a vacuum. It requires involvement in the lives of others. And so, authentic Christianity is personal. Verse 13, contributing to the needs of the saints, practicing hospitality. You see, authentic Christianity participates in the lives of other believers. Help needy Christians, says the message, The word contributing here, guess what word it is? It is the word for fellowship. It's a word that was very popular in the 70s, koinonia. It's the Greek word for participation, for fellowship. It means participating in another believer's life so much so that you view his needs as if they were your needs. That's the way it was in the early church. If you look up Acts chapter 2, verses 42 and 44, it uses the same word. They experienced great fellowship. They had all things in common. Romans 12, 5 says it in a way that's memorable. It says that we are members of one another. If you were hungry, you'd feed yourself, right? If a fellow believer is hungry, you should feed him if you can because it's like feeding yourself. But you know what? That requires having enough of a relationship with that other believer that you know he's hungry. That doesn't happen today because we're sitting at home in our living rooms dialing up Facebook on our smartphones and we're interacting with other people and yet they're 100 million miles away and we think that we're right next door, but we're not. That's not relationship necessarily. It's only one aspect of a relationship. See, we're partners, the Bible says. Therefore, if my brother has a need, I should be willing to meet that need with the resources God has given me if I can. It's our personal responsibility to participate in the lives of the saints. However, our responsibility goes beyond just the saints. It also says here that it pursues relationships with strangers. It says practicing hospitality. That's what it means. That's what it refers to. It means to hunt or pursue that word practicing. It's not just to be shown when it's sought by others. No, this indicates that we are to actively seek opportunities to use that thing called hospitality. Hospitality is a tough one, you know, especially for some people. Some people just have the gift. Others really have to work hard at it, you know. 
I'd like, I'd love to see, I wish I could see into your minds right now, because some of you have, you just love hospitality, and others of you are like, no, please get them away, right? It's a tough one, it really is. It's like the story I encountered of a young wife that had invited some people over for dinner. And when they were all seated at the table, she turned to their six-year-old daughter and, and she said, would you like to say the blessing? And the girl replied, Mommy, I wouldn't know what to say. And she said, well, just say what you hear Mommy say. And the daughter obediently bowed her head and began, Lord, why on earth did I invite all these people to dinner? <laughs> Hospitality is a tough one. We're not all wired up for that. But in Christ, we can show it. Amen? Hebrews 13.2 says, Do not neglect to show hospitality to strangers, for by this some of you have entertained the angels unaware. This is the mark of real Christianity. It's authentic, practical activity toward others. It, it mustn't be faked. It needs to be real. Are you willing to give yourself or to give someone a part of yourself this week? That's the question I'll leave you with. To be a giving tree? Because that's what's going to take to make your faith believable to a watching world. It's, what's, it's what it's going to take. So let me close by adapting and expanding on a few of the words of the opening story. Once there was a Christ follower, and she loved a little boy. And when Jesus said he came not to be served, but to serve, and to give his life a ransom for many, the little boy understood. He understood from the shade the Christ follower gave to him, from the fruit, the branches, and everything else she had sacrificed over the years, down to the very stump. And the boy loved the tree, and the tree was happy, and so was the tree's maker. 